This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, that, that was the very definition of the sound of one hand clapping uh, coming from the fifth row from the front there. It's nice to be greeted in a tepid fashion in the Sydney Opera House. Um, Rule one of chairing an event like this is don't milk the applause, and I've broken it already. Welcome to this Festival of Dangerous Ideas event, Break a Rule a Day with Lionel Shriver. My name is Michael Williams. I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne and uh, the host of Blueprint for Living on ABC Radio National. Uh, the thing about rules and the breaking of them is that the question we have to ask ourselves first is whose rules are they and what foundation were they built on? And here in Australia, our rules, our laws, our government are built on invasion and on dispossession. I'd like to acknowledge we're on the lands of the Gadigal people and the, of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present and the elders of other communities who might be here today. Paying respect, acknowledging the traditional owners, um, there should be more to it than that. That might be a dangerous idea for another day. Um, but I think what we need to make sure we do is think about the rules that are built on that and we owe it to ourselves to be kind of curious about whether it works, whether uh, this event, this festival, this city is built on something of meaning. The moral and legal implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day and I think we owe it to that acknowledgement of country to genuinely show respect, to ask questions of it and break some rules from time to time. Uh, ironically, for an event called Break a Rule a Day, the Opera House has given me a big list of rules that I need to share with you now. Uh, not least to put your phones on silent. If you are tweeting, tweet to the hashtag hashfody. If you tweet to a different hashtag, you will be being an anarchist, and that's fantastic, but no one will know you've done it. Um, this event is also significant because it's being streamed via the internet to a number of satellite venues, and I'd like to say a big hello to them now. Bear with me. Canberra Theatre Centre, Blacktown City Libraries, Broken Hill City Library, Glasshouse Port Macquarie, The Joan in Penrith, Merigong Theatre Company, Museum of the Riverina Wagga Wagga, Riverside Theatres in Parramatta, Taree Library, Windsong Pavilion, Four Winds Bermagui, Western Plains Culture Centre in Dubbo, Alice Springs Public Library, Darwin City Library, James Cook University Cairns, James Cook University Townsville, and the City Library Adelaide. Rest assured, across the country, people are hooting at hearing their names mentioned right now. Big round of applause for all of them. Now, you might be wondering about my credentials to host a session called Break a Rule a Day. I flew up to Sydney from Melbourne uh, yesterday evening on a Virgin flight, and uh, the announcement came out uh, saying, please, uh, if you're seated in rows 15 and behind, board now. I was in row 12, but I boarded any anyway. <laughs> Essentially, I'm like Australia's answer to Banksy when it comes to rule breaking, so I feel very well qualified for this. Luckily, we have a far more prestigious guest to talk about these things. Lionel Shriver is an author of 12 books. Uh, she is a breaker of rules. She's one of uh, literature's finest writers at the moment. She is passionate, she is fierce, she is clear-eyed, and she's really funny, which is a wonderful thing. And her new book, The Mandibles, is no exception. It looks at an America that has suffered a termin terminal decline. It is futuristic, but only just and I'm looking forward to talking to her today at length. A recent profile in The New Yorker said, Shriver takes ornery pride in her more contrarian beliefs. Ornery pride is something I think we could all lay claim to, but describing herself, she says, I am a writer, a cook, a sculptor, a tennis player, a big mouth, a hothead, a cut up, and a ham. Please welcome Lionel Shriver. I'm quite taken with the way you describe yourself. Why a ham? I guess we'll see. Ah, yes, good, ham it up. We're looking for extra hammy. Are you a rule breaker as well as all those things? Devotedly. Devotedly. Well, I haven't found the rule to break today, so we're gonna have to do something really wild. Yeah, no, we'll work on that. Most of them are occupational health and safety, so they're the sensible kind of rule. 
I mean, th that's the problem with the concept of rule breaking for rule breaking's sake, isn't it? Surely some rules are sensible. Well, I'm not necessarily uh, advocating breaking rules uh, capriciously, um, just for the sake of it, though I think it's good for your soul. I mean, um, to, there's something about jaywalking that's very satisfying. Uh, much more uh, satisfying than sitting there w like a dullard waiting for the light to change and there's no traffic. Jaywalking. That's your dangerous idea? Just out in front <laughs> of the I was desperate. <laughs> no, I, I accept that. Do you resent being denied the chance to make your own choices for what you do? I like to be able to assess rules for whether they are sensible, and I will obey them if, if they're rational. So, you know, and we, we come up against this, especially in traffic. I, I happen to um, bicycle everywhere, but uh, this, the, same, the same rules apply. And I find that I, I'm, I'm devoted about not violating other people's right of way. I think that's a very good rule. I don't like to have my right of way violated. And uh, so I don't run over pedestrians. I'm one of those rare cyclists who actually stops at zebra crossings. And, and, and pedestri pedestrians look at me like, wow. <laughs> so I'm, I'm respectful of, of, of those rules, which in that Kantian sense, when universalized, uh, you know, what if everyone did this? Uh, add up. And that's why I say I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run the light just to run the light. I run the light because there are no traffic and no pedestrians, so what am I waiting for? Makes, makes sense. Do you remember, were you a, were you a rule-breaking child? Oh, I was something of a tyro as a child and uh, threw a lot of tantrums, did not like being told what to do, and I haven't changed. <laughs> so you worked out very early on that you needed to set your own agenda? Yes. Hmm. All right, makes sense. So you wrote a terrific article uh, earlier this year where you talked about what it was for you to be a libertarian, that you, it was called I'm Not a Kook, Mm. And you made a, an impassioned distinction between the libertarian being dismissed as a kook and what you saw as the kind of fundamental values of it. And there's a great quote in there. You quote David Boaz uh, and his uh, The Libertarian Mind, saying, you learn the essence of libertarianism in kindergarten. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. Are they good rules to live by? I think they're excellent rules to live by. And... Uh I think libertarianism has been given a terrible name. Uh, we are regarded as goofy. Uh, um, but, you know, there's nothing about being libertarian that means that you have to go back to the gold standard. There isn't. And there's nothing about being libertarian that, no, that means that you sit around all day reading Ayn Rand novels. Uh, Thank God. You should read mine instead. <laughs> Uh, actually, the principles of libertarianism are naturally American, and that's why it's so perverse that, that the creed has got such a bad rep in my country. Um, the, I, the, the essential idea that uh, a free country is a place where uh, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt other people, you know? And I think that's a, a, a terrific, not so much rule as rubric, to live by, and uh, we don't follow it in the United States anymore. And one of the things that concerns me about what has happened in countries like my own, and, and I think it's probably happening here, is that the whole drift of social democracy has been toward control, so that it's no longer good enough uh, that to, to just let people do what they want. You have to enforce virtue, however that may be conceived of in the day. And uh, I resist that model, and uh, I, I think we're, we are drifting away from the original concept of a, of a free country that, that I grew up with. It is a very controlling system. 
It continually passes more and more laws. Uh, compliance uh, in every respect, uh, especially in relation to taxes, takes up an obscene amount of uh, our uh, time and I think is actually uh, seriously depressive of economic productivity. Does that way of seeing the world rely on trusting your fellow citizens in believing that they can make good choices for themselves? That's right, but um, the libertarian perspective would argue that you have to allow people to make their own mistakes when the impacts are primarily on themselves. And there are plenty of um, gray areas, and I acknowledge that immediately, the things like um, uh, environmental compliance, which I would support. So I, I would certainly uh, call myself an abridged or qualified libertarian. I don't think that those principles are universally applicable. But this is what I liked about your article a great deal, was you acknowledge that we too often try to fit things into boxes. Even libertarianism isn't a terribly useful descriptor once you dig down, because there are bits where your natural impulse not to conform makes you go the other way. Well, um, the reason I latch onto the label is it's all I've got. And uh, I'm in an awkward position in, in my own polity. And I find this also in, in the UK, but especially in the US, that there is no party uh, that represents uh, my views. I am a social liberal. Uh, I would, my, the policies I back would be downright permissive, and even more so than standard liberalism. I would legalize recreational drugs. I would legalize prostitution. Of course, I have no problem with gay marriage, and I am pro-choice. And by the way, the libertarian candidate... <laughs> the libertarian candidate, Rand Paul, who, who ran in that vast array of, of Republicans in this election, uh, in the primaries, uh, was anti-choice which is unlibertarian. So even the libertarians in the United States are not libertarian. But I'm also a, a fiscal conservative. I, um, I don't hold out any hope for it, but I would really like to see the size of government constrained. I prefer a, a, a country that lives within its budget. I don't like debt. There is no party for me to vote for. Uh, there is no, the Democrats are, you know, tax and spend, and they always live up to their stereotype. Uh, and, and the Republicans are social lunatics. <laughs> so what, you know, for whom I've, am I supposed to vote? Well, I mean, by default, because of some of the social issues, they're, they're so important. Um, they, I end up voting Democratic. I mean, I've never voted Republican in my life. But, you know, I'm not, I don't think that's something to cheer because I would like to be able to vote for, for candidates who represent my economic views, and I am unable to. Uh, that applause suggests that you need to reveal now that you hate small animals or something just to get the audience offside again because they're agreeing with you. They're feeling this all the way. <laughs> I stopped them. I stopped them applauding me. Yeah, no, that's true. That's the opposite of milking it. That's, uh, that's a very good decision. <laughs> One thing I read from you that seemed really interesting to me, because you divide your time between the UK and the US, mm -hmm. and um, I heard you talk about the fact that your politics stay the same, but in those two different countries, you're seen as different. In the UK, you're seen as quite conservative. In the US, you're seen as quite liberal, purely by dint of the kind of focus of those yeah, two Yeah, and, and one of the things that's useful about um, going back and forth like that is to discover the arbitrariness of these categories. I mean, after all, the, the, the political position I just described uh, uh, doesn't belong to the left or the right in, in US terms. I'm, I'm just odd woman out. Uh, so I feel alienated from those classical left-right categories, because in the UK, I'm not just seen as conservative, I'm seen as a right-wing nut. And then I, I just take a, a quick, uh, what is for you, a quick, plane trip um, <laughs> over to the U.S. and suddenly I'm a raving liberal, you know. Uh, so it, it means I think outside those categories. And with, I find that very useful because uh, Western liberalism has gone completely off course and is now all about control. You know, it's, it's the liberals who, um, who want to bring in things like fat taxes and and who want uh, a confiscatory 
tax regime, uh, a positively punitive tax regime if you earn more than a certain amount of money. Uh, they're very um, top-down, we're going to make you good. And that's not actually liberal. So in, in that I'm trying to carve out a position that I'm comfortable in, I just, I look, I, I, I look at these categories, I see the falseness of these categories, and I don't, I don't think within them. And what's useful about that is it doesn't trap me in a factional sense. That's very, you know, so I'm not allied with the Democrats in the United States. And I think that, that in terms of um, a healthy electorate, that's very useful. I think party affiliation has a destructive side because it, it means that we get into an us-then mentality. And rather than weighing up issues and candidates, we, we just root for our side. And, and that's one of the things that's really uh, messing up uh, Republicans in the United States right now, because, of course, their side has nominated Donald Trump. <laughs> By the way, I have to tell you, I was doing a podcast yesterday, and I have never been insult so insulted. <laughs> the otherwise quite congenial um, interviewer asked me whether I supported Donald Trump. <laughs> I thought... You know, there's definitely something going wrong with my PR. <laughs> Someone needs to get sacked for that, definitely. <laughs> I think the only answer is you run for office yourself. I mean, that's the, that's the clear, sensible thing. I actually right? had somebody in an audience once ask if I would please run for office. Not remotely tempted? But um, not if you get up in front of audiences and tell them to break the law. <laughs> Although, come to think of it, that's what Donald Trump has been doing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a slightly fraught situation. The, Edward Snowden tweeted the other day, break classification rules for the public's benefit and you could be exiled. Do it for personal benefit and you could be president. <laughs> Which I thought was an interesting idea. Are you a contrarian? I mean, does this resistance to control mean that if you sense someone's trying to make you think a particular way, talk a particular way, you go against it just because you don't want to be controlled? Um, I just try to be an in independent intellect, and um, I, I don't think I'm very successfully controlled. But I, I, I am as I am interested in as a novelist and as a person in people's relationship to authority. And again, going back and forth between the UK and the US, I noticed that there's a very big difference. Um, the UK. Uh, the British are slavishly obedient to the law, and they have a, um, a regard for the law for its own sake. So you're not supposed to do this, that, and the other thing because it's the law, and that's the end of it. There is no more discussion. Um, and I reject that out of hand. I, I know too much about history, and you do too. I mean, um, blacks used to be considered three-fifths of a human being in the United States. That was the law. Homosexuality used to be illegal. That was the law. In Germany, Jews used to have to sew a gold star onto their jackets. That was the law. So I'm supposed to have respect for the law, for the law's sake, not on your life. So being skeptical and critical. No, law is, is simply, it's, it's what people do. It's what groups of people have created. So there's nothing sacrosanct about it. People make mistakes. I want to move off the political sphere in a second, and I particularly want to get to the mandibles, which I think teases out some of these ideas. My publisher appreciates this. It's a, it, it's, I'm doing it by stealth. No one's noticed, but they're all reaching for their wallets right yeah. now, I, I assure you. Um, but just before we leave the world of politics, I want to ask about Brexit, because the half of the time that you spend in the UK, that's a big moment uh, in world politics lately, that in part is driven by people chafing against the rules that are being imposed on them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted you to talk about your views on the Brexit campaign. Well, much to the horror of absolutely everyone I know in London, um, I did support Brexit. And uh, 
In fact, I, I had a couple friends who were fascinated. It was as if they'd discovered this rare zoo animal. <laughs> they wanted to keep it in a cage and poke at it. Uh, and I had a, a raft of, I think, good reasons. Um, all of them do not relate to the control issue, but I, I resent the way the EU has come to function. And it, it, it is not a democratic organization. Uh, it imposes its will by committee. The, um, the parliament is not able to uh, create legislation, it simply passes it. And I've actually seen footage of what the European Parliament looks like. These people just sit there like zombies and go, yes, 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 on this button on their desk. So, you know, basically uh, the EU does whatever it wants to and then the, the countries un under it uh, have, have to submit. And it's a very micromanaging institution, so it controls everything from um, what you can put in your tooth whitener to the, the size of a vessel you can have on an electronic cigarette. And it's just absurd, the weenie stuff that this organization is controlling. And I, you know, I also have a, 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 a mischievous side uh, when it comes to narrative. I want to see what happens. <laughs> I think it would be an interesting experiment if the, if the uh, UK left the EU. I, I want to follow that story. And I'll tell you that my biggest concern about Brexit is not that, oh, it's going to lead to economic implosion in World War III, but that it's just not going to happen. In fact, that was my prediction from the beginning, that even if uh, the Leave camp won, which um, I did not expect, uh, that because the referendum result is non-binding, which was under-advertised at the time, uh, they, they will organize a relationship to the EU which so resembles today's that they might as well not have had the referendum. And, and that, that, that will make a farce of the whole thing. And that's, that's actually what I expect. Does a farce make for a satisfying narrative conclusion, at least? Well, I love being right. <laughs> Yeah, that matters more than the story. Obviously. Yeah. Doesn't that impulse to want to see the story play out then lead to President Trump? I mean, isn't your misguided podcast interviewer yesterday latching on to something there, which is if mischievousness now, is the goal? Let's put it this way. There are some books I put down, right? I don't want to read that one. Is that because I know you describe yourself as a patriot? And I think that's interesting for someone with an anti-authoritarian, uh, I was going to say streak, but someone who is so anti-authoritarian, what does it mean for you to be a patriot? I think it's as simple as wishing my own country well. I wish your country well also, but I feel some investment in what happens to the United States. One of the things that disturbed me about um, one of the outlier reviews of the mandibles is that I was described as... Um, having depicted the decline of my own country gleefully. Now, it's true that it's a playful book, and I tried to make it entertaining and sometimes funny, but it is certainly not celebrating the prospect of the downfall of my own country. And I, I, I was interested how insulting I found that. Not only is it not celebrated, you actually actively have it right at the start when I hear you say that. The characters are watching the news break. Mm. And one of the things, I think it's Willing that spots it, is the expression on the newscaster's face that they're thrilled that this is a good story, but you can see in their face the knowledge it's going to end badly. And yes. they're torn between wanting the news and uh, reflecting on what it means. I mean, it does seem to me to be a misreading to think there's anything gleeful in this book. Yes, and, and it's, it's certainly not, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite mournful in, in, in tone as things gradually fall apart. Uh, it's about a, a, the collapse of the dollar and, and the consequences of that. So, and, and it saddens me. I mean, I think the United States is an interesting social experiment, even more interesting than the UK leaving the EU. And it's a, it's a country that 
was formed around an idea, and most countries aren't. Most countries are accidents. They are a collection of histories or peoples. Um, many times their boundaries are arbitrary. They are rarely uh, ideological, and the United States was formed around a set of principles. And I, you know, the way those principles started out, that you know, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody, I think is brilliant. And I hate to see it subverted. I hate to see the texture of modern life become so sniveling and fearful. Uh, but I think it started out as a good idea. I'd love to be able to yank it back a little more to the way it was supposed to be. Uh, but I feel invested in what happens to it. And I th that's my version of patriotism. Lionel, sniveling and fearful, uh, the kind of adjectives that make me love your books. <laughs> and uh, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. Don't you then, if you want to protect the idea, if the idea is that valuable, that's the foundation, isn't that when you set up rules? Isn't that how you protect the idea, is to come up with a set of controls to make sure it's okay, or is the idea robust enough without rules to enforce it? Oh, well, look, I'm not talking about living in a completely lawless society and expecting everybody to get along and, and you know... Yes, of course, of course we need some rules. Did I say break every rule a day? No. Um, and what, what the law should be about is, is protecting... Oh, you, know, you know, I said the rubric is as long as you don't do what you like as long as you don't hurt other people where there are plenty of things that people do that do hurt other people and that's what the law is for. Mm. I mean, I'll, let me take a, a stupid little example. Um, especially since my uh, husband was once a heavy smoker uh, and I was having, you know, one or two roll-ups a day just as a kind of flirtation. I thought it was important for me not to be complicitous in his um, behavior that was not good for his health. And I, and I knew he would theoretically like to um, give up smoking. So I converted to electronic cigarettes and my husband's very suggestible. Um, so about two weeks later, he did the same thing. And he's been smoking them ever since. So I feel invested in this issue. Now, the uh, laws against um, smoking in public places, smoking cigarettes, I think are sound because there is plenty of uh, medical evidence that secondhand smoke is bad for you. So that, that it goes right along with this notion of you don't do something that actually hurts other people and um, laws against smoking in bars and on airplanes um, are perfectly valid, although I draw the line at the laws against smoking in public parks and beaches, which is absurd, okay? But what's especially absurd is to extend that to electronic cigarettes. There is absolutely no evidence that secondhand vaping hurts anybody, and yet we are, you know, this is one of the countries that treats electronic cigarettes as exactly the same. New York City does the same thing. They're being demonized, but they don't hurt anybody. And, but we are so accustomed to just you know, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll ban that, we'll ban that. We've gone ban happy. That no, nobody questions, well, why are you impinging on these people's rights to use their electronic cigarettes when there is no solid, not a whiff of uh, evidence that uh, it's, an, it's injurious to public health? And to test the break a rule of day theory, there's an electronic cigarette under each of your seats. If you could take it out now. We'd like, no, that, that would have been good. We should have organised that. We mm. can get onto it. Um, so then, where does morality come in? Because part of the story of the mandibles is about the story of how to cope when everything collapses, when uh, survival becomes almost more important than anything else. And choices have to be made. Mm. And your characters each have points where they have to kind of consider their own moral code. Well, one of the things that I'm documenting in the mandibles is the way we have kind of circles of loyalty. And when everything is hunky-dory and we're living in, within the context of a rough social order, uh, then the, that circle of loyalty can be quite 
expansive. It can even extend to the whole country, or for that matter, you can say, you know, I care about humanity. My, my, my loyalty is to my entire species, and it's all very noble. But you can, you can only do that uh, when, in a Darwinian sense, you are safe. And as, when you're dealing with the gradual um, decline of social order, the circle of loyalty gets smaller. First, it may shrink to your country, but gradually it shrinks to maybe your city or your neighborhood or you and your neighbors or your family. You know, and of course you, you put, put, put people in super Darwinian, like they're about to die, then they have sometimes to choose between their family. But I'm interested in this closing of the circle and the point, little by little, you let people go. Um, if you've only got so much food, you don't share it with anyone but your family at a certain point. And, and I, there, there's something horrible about that, the shrinking of, of, of that circle of loyalty but also inexorable. It's worth noting the Mandibles is the story of a family. It covers four generations. Um, and they go from the expectation of wealth and prosperity to nothing in a heartbeat. And um, the kind of, I, I think you've used the phrase and I really liked it, stealth protagonist of the book is uh, from the youngest generation. And uh, his name's Willing and there's a scene where he has to make a decision for his family that for me, so much of the book hinges on. Mm. Can you talk about that a bit? You mean do you the, think that's uh, with the little boy? Yeah, when he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'll let you I, I guess actually it's quite germane to what I was saying. Mm. Um, there is nothing in the house for dinner, and it's one of those, you know, we say that a lot, oh, we have nothing to eat, and actually our pantries are full of grains and cans, and we just can't come up with anything. But no, there's really actually nothing in the kitchen. There's nothing. So uh, my protagonist goes out, and this is where you see him cross a moral line, and you know that there's, there's no going back. Um, and his mother has been, had been feverishly gathering up, you know how we keep jars of stray coins? And because inflation has been rampant, the, the coins are so worthless that in order for her to buy anything, you know, she has to marshal the entire jar. So she's been stacking up, you know, trying to figure out whether, you know, she can put together enough to get something for dinner. And her son, who's, who's the hero of our story, is furious with her. It's, the exercise is so demeaning and splays her little stacks and says, you know, screw this, and instead takes a, a, a sock from a dresser and fills it with several fistfuls of, of change, knots it, and takes it outside. And he uses it as a weapon, this sock full of heavy change, and threatens a little boy into giving him the sack of groceries, which is obviously for the little boy's family's dinner. And Willing you has hitherto been a, a peaceable character, um, but he suddenly becomes a, a, a bit of a, a thug, a bully, and out of necessity. And that's how, that's what kind of, that's what that more Darwinian situation does to you. And, and again, it, it has that mournful, quality, that, that there, is, there is a lost innocence, and, and although there's a, the kicker on that chapter is that uh, he, Willing hadn't imagined that the money on his mother's dresser would be able to purchase anything where, anything near dinner, and look, it just had. It's a horrible moment in the book because you're so invested in Willing. Mm. But it also comes after many pages of characters regretting doing the right thing 
before everything went to shit. Mm. You know, that idea that, okay, we're going to be responsible, we're going to save, we're going to put money away, we're going to worry about our pension and our superannuation and our... And suddenly, after total collapse, the people who did that have nothing to show for it. There's a kind of... Yes, it's a novel about uh, the betrayal of your government and, you know, it's, it, and it, a government that betrays people who have indeed been following the rules the whole time. Um, and of course, you know, th th there's also a line in there that says that uh, books set in the future are always about what people are afraid of in the present, and this is no e exception. So that uh, I am talking about what's ri happening right now economically. I mean, in, in our zero interest environment, I think we are punishing people who have followed the rules, who've done what they were told to. They're supposed to save for the future and save for their retirement. And suddenly, retirement accounts, unless they're put at risk, in, in, in investments that, who knows what's going to happen, uh, are not making any money whatsoever. And instead, we're rewarding debtors and trying to get people to borrow still more money. And um, the Presbyterian in me rejects that. Now, don't get that wrong. I'm not a practicing Presbyterian, <laughs> but I do have that background. And it has a little residue. A little. <laughs> Why is it that the... Um government control of the economic sphere. Ultimately, in this book, that's the greatest betrayal of government here, the loss of people's financial freedom. Um, explain to me how, for you, economics became so front and centre in the writing of this book. Was it the engine at the start, or was it something that uh, came to you as you were working through it? Well, I'm, I am very interested in the proposition that if you are not free economically, you are not free. Um, and I, I, I guess part of, part of this is autobiographical. Um, I lived most of my life on extremely little money, and I, I'm not asking for sympathy. Uh, Just money. Buy a copy of the mandibles at the bookshop <laughs> after the event. And ultimately, I, I have to, I, you know, I had my frustrations with uh, being able to find an audience for my novels, but honestly, otherwise, I was perfectly happy. And um, making a little more money has been one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And I, I, I know that nobody wants sympathy. Uh, for, nobody's going to grant sympathy uh, for someone who is whining about making too much money. But the, the experience of suddenly kind of being on the radar tax-wise has been a nightmare. <laughs> and by the way, you know, all, all this stuff about the super rich and, and tax evasion and all these terrible rich people are getting away with murder. Well, I, I read articles about that all the time because I want to know how they do it. <laughs> Americans have to report their worldwide income, everything, regardless of where they live. Um, so, if you're obeying the law, you're not getting away with anything. And uh, there have been a lot of Americans who have renounced their citizenship precisely because of this, because the reporting requirements are so onerous, and yet you're not even getting in on the so-called advantages of, of whatever you're paying your taxes for. And meantime, I also have to file taxes in the UK. They have completely different tax years. Uh, did you know that? You know, the UK tax year is August... Uh, April 5th to April 4th or something. It's just absurd. Um, and, and, and it's oppressive. It, uh, and the amount of time it takes, I resent. So one of the, you know, I'm outside the country, so I will admit that sometimes I estimate my stationary expenses. <laughs> And I, I, and, and I, find, I, um, I, I find the complexity of the tax code uh, a tyranny, and I am angry about the amount of my time per year is now commanded by having to comply up the wazoo with both these countries. So the second part of this book is set in 2047, and I'm exploring the ultimate in fiscal tyranny. Now, um, it, the, this part of the book has been misdescribed by some reviewers as the United States becoming a police state. 
but it isn't precisely a police state, but only in one respect in relation to your finances. Everyone is required in the same way that they used to be required to get a social security number, to get a chip in the back of their neck. And it's lodged right up against your spinal column so that in case you try to have a surgeon dig it out, you'll become a paraplegic. Um, and, and by the way, this technology is basically available today. It's the similar, similar to um, uh, the kind of chip that you have put in a dog or on a bicycle. Uh, but this one is for the monitoring uh, of all of your, your money so that when you're paid, it registers in the chip. Uh, when you, when you, uh, you, you no longer have to produce a, a, a card or a device to buy something, you just walk through checkout and it's deducted from your neck. But the key to the whole the chip thing, the whole purpose of it, which is, and, and the government has sold it to the public uh, as a, the ultimate in financial convenience, is that absolutely everything you do financially is reported to the tax authorities. So they know everything you buy and everything you earn. And they can extract taxes at source. And even if you make absolutely nothing at this stage of the game, they are um, extracting 77 cents for every dollar. It goes immediately to the tax authorities. And so, you know, it, 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 as, as my protagonist observes, you know, it's, it's not that they're trying to control your thoughts or anything. Um, they, they don't care what you think. They just want your money. So I'm exploring, you know, if you live in a country which completely controls your finances, are you free? And obviously, I'm arguing no. In a few minutes, you get a chance to ask questions of Lionel yourself. There's a microphone over here and one over there, and the same upstairs. If you make your way to it now, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm looking to you to see if you have the courage to ask something. I should say, and this is just a, a tip, that grandstanding or going off topic uh, isn't breaking a rule. It's just being tedious. So <laughs> um, don't feel you've got an invitation to do either of those things. We'd love to hear from you. Um, <laughs> that sounded so insincere, I feel terrible. <laughs> Not the mean bit, that sounded very sincere. Lionel, how do you feel about reviews of your work, and Mandibles has it as well, that talk about you as a writer who's interested in thought experiments, that you use your novels to kind of tease out ideas that push beyond the rules that we might not break in day-to-day -day life? Well, I guess, yes, most novels are really thought experiments. Um, they're trying to work out something that didn't usually actually happen. Um, and the whole idea of the um, near-future dystopia novel uh, is, uh, it's always a thought experiment. That's what the form is. And in, in this case, um, you know, I'm, I, I am designing an e a specifically economic dystopia, which is why I wouldn't describe it as science fiction, because I'm not especially interested in uh, advances in technology. So I deliberately make the technology in the book boring because I don't want you to pay attention to that. There are a few advances. Oh boy, we have driverless electric cars, you know. Um, I, I play w with a few little things like, um, yes, everyone has one of those computerized home management systems, but they don't always work. So I have one character whose, uh, whose system keeps ordering more milk. <laughs> And it keeps arriving, you know, like the sorcerer's apprentice. That, that was kind of fun. But I, um, yeah, I mean, all books are, all novels are thought experiments. The other thing that's clearly fun, though, is uh, the, the book is in part a damning indictment of your generation. And so as a consequence, you put your, uh, a thinly veiled version of yourself in the book to make it clear that you're not letting yourself off the hook. Yes. And, <laughs> you clearly have a lot of fun creating fictional Lionel or Nolly. Yes, um, there is one character in the book who was born in May 1957, my sheer coincidence, um, and who is also a novelist, which, and that means I actually I broke my rule against using novelists 
uh, in, in fiction, because I, I find that annoyingly lazy, but I, I couldn't resist this playfully. Um, the character's name is Enola Mandible, but she goes by Nolly, and I'll tip you off, Nolly is an anagram of Lionel. You know, it wasn't really easy to come up with a name that's a, an anagram of Lionel. <laughs> you try it. Um, and, you know, she's obnoxious, uh, she's uh, opinionated, she's aggressive, uh, she's bossy, and um, gets on everyone's nerves, and she's an exercise freak, even at 73, long past the point at which any of this uh, hopping up and down is going to make her look the slightest bit more attractive. Um, and all of her novels are actually the working titles, the really awful working titles of my novels. And this, this was an act of daring on my part because I usually don't let those titles out of the house. So I have now come clean on the fact that the original title of We Need to Talk About Kevin was Cradle to Grave. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> if I had gone with Cradle to Grave, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> no, that really would have stunk up the room. <laughs> uh, that's a terrible title. It's a, it's a chance for you, you guys to ask You should see some of the other ones. Isn't? Yeah, no, it's, you're a wiser novelist than Nolly. Did it surprise you that she was so likeable? Well, the, the weird thing was that I, I created her in order to make merciless fun of myself. But then, despite myself, I kind of got to like her. <laughs> so she ends up being I, I, a, a, a positive character by the end of it. And, um, and while I, I think maybe that, that, that on, a, on a fictional level that's disappointing, I think it, it, it at least is a good sign for my mental health. <laughs> that probably matters as much as the fiction, I think. Now, there's a question over here to kick us off. Do I turn it on? All right, thank you. Um, I saw a YouTube video the other day, I think the fellow's name was Kevin Shores, called Artificial Intelligence and Robotics, the New Renaissance, and saw in the news that Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and I think one other are setting up an ethics committee on artificial intelligence and robotics because they're worried the government might do it for them. Um, I'm wondering if you were to write now a book or sometime in the future looking at and traversing the worlds we're going to pass through as artificial intelligence and robotics take their place in society. What sort of worlds do you think it's going to traverse? I could go two different directions, optimistic and pessimistic with that one, and I think nobody is um, too certain where we're going to go. Uh, obviously, uh, the big concern with robotics becoming too successful is that we displace so many workers that we no longer have a functional economy. I say that because, you know, okay, if nobody has a job, how are they going to by the products that the robots make. It doesn't make any sense. Um, on the other hand, you know, you have to have a historical perspective, and we've been here before. We've been here multiple times before. Obviously, during the, um, the Industrial Revolution, everybody thought that machines were going to pe put people out of, out of business, and nobody would have a job anymore, and that's why the Luddites um, went around breaking up machinery. Uh, and it turns out that it simply freed up people to do more interesting things than, um, than, than physical manufacture of objects. And so, I mean, that's the more optimistic interpretation. I'm not quite sure uh, what the robots are going to free us up to do, however. I, I, I don't know whether, I mean, how much is there to do? do are we all going to go bungee jumping? More tennis. Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be on the tennis court. <laughs> but I am hopeful that, uh, that the advances in robotics 
will will not be as catastrophic as as we fear because we had you know we went through this also with computers and the computers were also supposed to put everyone out of a job also and they have put some people out of a job and they have had to be retrained and there are some people who get left behind and you know creative destruction is still destruction and still cr creates casualties so every time we revolutionize the way we do things, people get hurt and people get left behind. And, and I think that is uh, deserving of concern. But the one thing that never seems to work is to stand in the way of a new technology and say, well, we think this is going, we can't figure out how this is going to work economically, so we're not going to allow you to make the robots. And I, I think that's, that's a non-starter. We're going to go up to that corner there, number three. Okay, that's why King. Um, in Western society, particularly post the GFC, when governments have accumulated a lot of debt, um, especially here in Australia with our debates around the budget deficits, we see this idea that somehow tax cuts are tantamount to welfare or morally the same as receiving cash transfers from the government. Um, what do you think that that says about people's understanding about the relationship between individuals and the state? I think that's a good question. Um, I really resent it when tax cuts are, are portrayed as gifts uh, to, uh, of the government, of your own money, thank you very much. <laughs> right? So the presumption behind that kind of argument is that the government owns all your money, that, and therefore, um, and it will allow you, if you're really good, to have a little bit back. And, and, and one of the things that's weird to me about that way of thinking is that I um, was born in the late 50s, and when I was growing up in the United States, it was still during the Cold War, and we were, uh, we were raised on a, a lot of rhetoric about uh, how terrible it was in places like the Soviet Union because everyone worked for the state and no one was allowed any private property and only if you were really lucky did, were you allowed your own tiny little garden and that had to, to have a, a little bit of, 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 of money that, that is actually yours and that and what, a, what an awful life that was and how it destroyed everyone's motivation to work. That was the rhetoric that I grew up with. And then I look what's happening with Western social democracy and the, the kind of, that, that kind of thinking. And I think, well, what's the difference? You know, I was told that this was supposed to be so terrible and that it, was, it disabled people's uh, uh, will to achieve, which ultimately it did. I mean, I'm honest about the fact that I don't enjoy uh, making money and when I tally up at the end of the year when I'm doing my taxes and discover, oh, this was a really bad year, I am happy. It makes me festive. Because the less money I make, the, more I'm their, the less I'm their creature, right? And when I make nothing, I am free. So I think this whole model is really turning everything on its head. I don't want to work for government. I don't want to regard myself as working for government. And I guess I bought it when I was a kid. I heard about the way things were done in the Soviet Union and it didn't sound very cool to me. So why should we imitate it now? Thank you. I, I would really like you to bring out a, a line of festive Christmas cards because <laughs> your idea of festive I think could shake that up a bit. I think they would sell very well, which would be disappointing. Over here. <laughs> yeah, um, question about Kevin, I guess. Um, what's your, what would be the libertarian view and your view about gun control, which we in Australia control quite heavily, mm -hmm. maybe not heavily enough, but is certainly uncontrolled in the US and leads to a whole lot of stuff, including Kevin? Um. You know, in principle and, and, in, in, and, and as a practicality, I'm a little torn. I basically do back gun control. Um, 
And I, I think I'm less safe in the United States because it's so easy to get guns. Um, but I have, to, I have a confession to make. Uh, that in writing the mandibles, what does my family ultimately need to acquire when things really go to hell? It was hard to avoid. They needed a gun. So, and, 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 and this is a confession, because it's kind of in violation of what I really think. I mean, it, apropos of, you know, you can do whatever you like as long as you don't hurt anyone. Well, you know, guns hurt people. So I'm not too keen on people running around having guns. But at the same time, I did make uh, the fact that my, my, my main character was able to get hold of a gun, it saved their lives. So I have some regard for the, the gun lobby's claim that, you know, that, 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 is, that is an aspect of, of being free. But it's very uncomfortable. And I included that detail in my novel uncomfortably and, and in, in a state of dismay. Is that how you know you're writing something worthwhile if you're a bit uncomfortable about it? Yeah, I didn't see how I could avoid it. I mean, I did start out with, with uh, the protagonist using a sock and change as a weapon, but that wasn't going to protect his family for very long. So, but of course, you know, in my defense, we're talking about total civil breakdown by the end of that section in the novel. And in those circumstances, yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I'm, I can see why people want a gun to the, protect themselves in certain circumstances. Um, so I think it's worth not being simplistic on this issue and just saying, you know, citizens shouldn't be able to get guns. There are, there are people who live in situations where they may need one. I think there are places on the, on the southern border of the United States that have become so lawless and frightening and crawling with uh, drug dealers. And I'm not chiming in with Trump or anything, but it, it is real. The Mexican drug cartel thing is real. He didn't make it up. And there are... So I can see if you were a farmer who, who had um, property on, on the border of the U.S. And it, and it was a major you know, drug route, I might get a gun. So, yeah, I, I support gun control, but, I, but with some qualifications. Uh, there's a question up there next. Okay, th thank you, Lyon, for a very interesting set of views. My wife and I are passionate cyclists, and we believe that wearing a, a helmet on a, on a main road is a good idea. However, in, a, in Australia, it's illegal to get onto a bike unless you're wearing a helmet. Now, this only applies in Australia and New Zealand, so I think we can safely say that over 99% of the world population of whatever political assuasion don't feel it's necessary to have this law. So I very much agree with your mantra, which is you should do things that don't, that if they don't hurt anybody else. Mm -hmm. So every day we ride our bikes without helmets. Now... Uh, ooh, ooh. I'd applaud that. <laughs> I'd, I'd really like your advice, obviously, because you must have come against this problem as well, is what should I say to the policeman <laughs> when he stops me, as he has done on a number of occasions? Uh -huh. um, what should I, how should I deal with that situation? With the greatest respect. <laughs> Finally, we get to the important topics, though. <laughs> We've been just... I do think that, that helmet laws and seatbelt laws are an interesting grey area. Um, it, it probably is in your interest to wear a helmet. Uh, the, the research has conflicted. There are some research that says it doesn't make that much difference, but I, I don't want to land on... I, I wear a helmet, and I don't need a law to tell me to wear a helmet. Um, I wear a seatbelt fanatically. So if, if there's a law passed that says I have to wear a bike helmet and I have to wear a seatbelt, it doesn't affect me. And 
So I, you know, in a rather lazy, complacent way, I, I have no problem with these laws because I have no problem with compliance with them. I mean, I, it, in principle, I can see why it should be your right to not wear a helmet. So I would prefer, you know, maybe a, a campaign that, in, a, an ad campaign that encourages you to wear a helmet more than I would say it has, to, you know, it's a law. Uh, you know, these encounters with the cops, basically, at a certain point, you have to let your wild anti-authoritarianism go by the wayside <laughs> out of self-preservation. So what you say is, what can I do for you, officer? I, re I recommend toadying and shit-eating. <laughs> yes, officer. You know, I left my helmet at home. I'm so sorry. I was in a hurry. I will remember to put it on next time. Sound good? Thank you very much. I don't want to get you into trouble. Who, who would have thought the author of We Need to Talk About Kevin would advocate toadying and shit-eating <laughs> in the face of authority? Uh, that's my kind of anti-authority all the way. One over here. Uh, how do you reconcile your dislike for taxes um, with the fact that a lot of those taxes are used to create a social safety net, which is really a means of extending that circle of loyalty that you mentioned? I mean, my, my general feeling about taxes is that I have no problem with them conceptually if what they are about is um, all of us contributing something in order to support the needs that we all have that we can't fulfill individually. And, uh, you know, w why would I have a problem with that? The trouble is that that's not what they become. I mean, I, pref I think you, that we have a, a healthier polity if everyone contributes something. Yet, I, I mean, I don't know very much about what's going on here, but I know in both the UK and the US, about half the country doesn't pay any income tax anymore. And so it's no longer a contributory system. It's all about redistribution. And it, it creates um, resentment on both sides. The people who are actually paying for everything obviously resent the fact that they pay for everything. And the other half of the population, who are mostly recipients of government largesse, resent the fact that they're not getting more and believe that the people who are wealthy are having all the fun, you know? So it's a, it's a kind of ugly polarization. And I much prefer a system where uh, everyone contributes something, is therefore vested in, has a vested interest in how that money is spent. And, and it's not just taking from one group of people and giving to the other. I like the idea of everyone coming together and to the best of their ability contributing something. And I think that, uh, I mean, I, I know that's probably not popular here, but I think there's something to be said for a flat tax. If it, uh, 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 the best thing about a flat tax is you get rid of that polarity. And also, if it's set at a reasonable level, then you don't get that kind of elaborate tax evasion. It's wh when you take 50 to 60% or even more in some countries uh, of someone's income, you overly motivate them to get around the law. Whereas Estonia, I visited, I went to the Estonian Literary Festival a couple of years ago, and one of the most interesting things about that country is they have a flat tax. It's set at 21% and everybody pays it. And there's very little tax evasion. Uh, it's actually a quite a prosperous country. Fun place. Go there. Um, great architecture. And, and I think there's something sound about it. Uh, now, okay, you can play with that model a little bit and maybe have a somewhat progressive flat tax, but the more you do that, the more you're gonna encourage the kind of tax evasion we've got now. Uh, I like, you know, I like in principle the idea of let's all get together, pull our, a, a, a set percentage of our resources and c cover our healthcare costs, 
cover our, you know, our roads, um, and 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 to the degree that we need to our defense. So, Can am I, I saying that we it? shouldn't have taxes? No, I'm just saying I don't like the way it's done now, and I I, I want it to see. I want to see it vastly simplified and stop wasting everybody's time. Can I pick up on your mention of healthcare? Anyone who read so much for that would know that this is a topic that you're very yes. interested in and concerned about, and you get the experience of seeing the US model and the UK model. I understand you're largely a fan of the NHS in the UK? Yes. Yeah. Uh, why, did, why are Americans so caught up in the idea of universal healthcare. Why do they get so angry? Why they hate it so much? Yeah, why socialized medicine? Surely that's working against self-interest. I understand self-interest. I don't understand, understand it, actually. Um, you know, everyone talks, the people who are resistant to so-called so socialized medicine in the United States always talk about, oh, you know, I want to be able to choose my doctor. But, you know, if you take a look at these insurance plans, you don't get to choose your doctor. They're extremely restrictive. In fact, the, all the things that, that people want uh, to be able to control, they don't, they don't control. They can't control which doctors they use. Uh, the, the, the insurance companies control which hospitals you can use. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. And um, in, in my country, everyone is just holding on by the fingernails and can't wait to turn 65 so that they'll be covered by Medicare. And that's socialized medicine. You know, I followed what's happened to Obamacare or this, the Affordable Care Act very closely, and, you know, it, it, it was a deadly compromise. It was what Obama thought he could get through, and I was sympathetic, but it's still putting the insurance companies in charge, and it is not working very well. We have... Time for one last very short question, and we're going to take it down here at number two. Oh, you're not waiting for a question. I'm sorry, I take it back. Guess what? We're out of time for questions. Everyone else, I'm so sorry. Um, but we have run out of time. The countdown clock is reminding us, and there's one rule we can't break at the Opera House, and it's running over time. Please. Oh, that inspires me to keep talking. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's, let's teach them a thing or two about time. Ladies and gentlemen, Lionel Shriver. Lionel will be signing books out in the foyer. Thank you to Jennifer, who was our Auslan translator today. Um, and you need to buy multiple copies of the mandibles. Uh, Lionel's such a rule breaker that everyone ends differently. So go out there and buy the shop up. Thank you, and have a good festival. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.